Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel, so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Daniel, the seventh chapter. And for those of you who are just joining us who are new, maybe who are visitors, uh, we're probing this unique book because of its outline of the future. And much of that outline is still future to us. Uh, The Bible is a unique book, and probably the feature of it that is most unique as far as books go is the fact that the Bible contains literally hundreds of prophecies, statements about the future. Many of those we get to witness and document just because of the course of history. We've seen some of those prophecies that are made. In the case of Daniel, he's making these prophecies in 565 B.C., And so we know some of the things that he spoke about and prophesied came true. We also know that some of the things that he addressed to us who were believers living in 1990 are still yet future to us. And therefore there is a certain exhilaration and excitement that we feel when we open these pages and begin to look at the things this prophet had to say to us. Things that help us order our lives aright. And we'll be talking more about that in the next few moments. You know, uh, it even happened again last night for our family, but uh, maybe it's happened in your home as well. Uh, There comes that moment where your parental radar goes out and you can hear some whimpers and cries from another bedroom, then the feverish patter of little feet down the hallway, and then you feel the bed rock a little bit, and you feel something sliding up your body and this hot breath in your face, and this little body says, Daddy, I had a scary dream. And again, that happened last night in our home. I think it's only appropriate since we're looking here in the book of Daniel. Because a child is running to you, wanting for you at that moment to offer some words of comfort and solace in the midst of that terrifying vision that they've just had. And they're saying, tell me it's not true. So we did that again last night with one of our boys. You know, when you go through the book of Daniel... The book of Daniel is a series of terrifying dreams. They really are. The book of Daniel is all about scary dreams. And uh, if you'll remember in the last message that I gave in Daniel chapter 2, it was a king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had this scary dream. And the minute he finished that scary dream and awoke, he ran to his counselors, these conjurers, these sorcerers who were in the palace court and asked for them to comfort him and console him and to give him the meaning of the dream, to tell him that it wasn't true. But none of those individuals could answer the questions or the visions that had portrayed themselves so vividly in his mind. So ultimately that fell to Daniel who was in the king's court and what Daniel then described to Nebuchadnezzar was his dream, as scary as it was, with the consequences that it indicated. But he told him, Nebuchadnezzar, this is not just a fantasy. What you saw is the future, and it's real. Now this was what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his particular scary dream. And if you'll notice, it's a a great statue, an awesome statue. And this statue is dictated by these different metals. If you remember in the dream that we looked at, the head was of gold, the the chest and the arms were of silver, the thighs were of brass, 
the legs were of iron, and then down at the very bottom, which was kind of the feature point of the vision, the feet were of iron and clay. And Daniel went on to describe in Daniel chapter 2, as he was inspired by the Spirit of God, that what Nebuchadnezzar saw in this beautiful but awesome statue were the four great kingdoms that would dominate the Gentile world. Four great world-dominating empires. And he went on to describe those in figurative language, but we know, as looking back in history, what those four kingdoms were. Uh, he states what the first one was in the dream, that the head of gold was the kingdom of Babylon, one of the first great world empires, that the chest of silver was the empire of Medo-Persia, that the thighs of brass, the hips and thighs of brass, was that of the great kingdom of Greece, and then finally, that the legs and the feet were the Roman Empire. Daniel made this interpretation of this scary dream, as I said, in 565 B.C. When he made this statement, when he looked into the future and prophesied these kingdoms, many of these kingdoms, in particular Greece and Rome, were still hundreds of years yet to the future. In fact, when Daniel made his prophecy about Greece and Rome in particular, Rome was nothing more than a little two-bit village. And yet Daniel said that one day they would be a world-dominating empire 400 years before Rome became such an empire. The Bible is an amazing book. Even if it had one prophecy, one, it would be an amazing book, much less the fact that it contains literally hundreds of those prophecies. Now of those four empires, the one that captured Nebuchadnezzar's fancy and Daniel's interpretation was the fourth, that is the Roman Empire. For this dream pictured that this empire, this last empire, would be the empire that would be in existence at the time of Jesus Christ's second coming. He was, the empire was there at the first coming, but the vision told of this empire being there at the second coming. You'll remember in the vision, as he saw this statue, eventually a great stone came out of nowhere. That stone represented Jesus Christ and landed on the feet of this statue. And then the statue, like a great big skyscraper, imploded and just crashed to the ground and was blown away as dust, bringing it to an end. Well, that might make some of you ask, well, how can this empire be in existence since... That empire, that is the Roman Empire, is now done away with. It's in the past. The Roman Empire is history. It's not future. It's not the future. It's history. Well, that's where this last little part of the statue comes in. The ten toes. The ten toes of iron and of clay, and that's what they were in the vision, according to Daniel's interpretation in Nebuchadnezzar's scary dream, they represent if I might use these words, a reappearance or a revival in the old Roman Empire shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So according to this first vision, this vision of the statue, there are going to be four great world empires as Daniel prophesied during the time of the very first one, the time of Babylon. There would be only four. That's what I want you to remember. Just four. And the fourth one would have two phases to it. The first phase would be the old Roman Empire that is today passed to us. 
And then there would be a second phase of that same empire that would once again coagulate back together, and that empire is still future to us. Now we move this morning from Daniel chapter 2 to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we have a second scary dream. And yet, in this particular scary dream, it's not Nebuchadnezzar having this dream, it's Daniel having this dream. And so I thought we would just read it and experience it with him. Would you read with me starting in verse 1? It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, throughout Scripture, the great sea is the sea of humanity. It's the, the human race. So these winds are stirring up the human race. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. There was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating these horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth, uttering great boast. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. And the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to this burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, in, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. 
Well, let's stop right there because from that point on, the interpretation is given. But my, what an incredible vision. If you want a great vision of the throne room of God, in verses 9 through 14, there is a tremendous vision that you might meditate sometime upon as far as the awesome power and judgment of God. But next to that judgment comes these four beasts out of the sea. And Daniel is alarmed. He particularly centers on this last beast, as we'll see in a moment, because that again is something that is related to the end of humanity, to the end of time. Daniel, in his distress, doesn't know what to do. Remember, he was given the interpretation of the vision that was made to Nebuchadnezzar, but now he has the, has the vision, and he does not have the interpretation. So in the midst of this vision that he's caught up into, if you'll notice in verse 16, he goes to someone that's not named for the interpretation. It says, I approached one of those who was standing by. I guess in this myriad of visions, as these people were standing by the Ancient of Days, a picture of God, he approaches one of those and he began asking him the exact meaning of all that he had seen. And this individual, it says, told Daniel and made known to him the interpretation of these things. Now who is this he that Daniel mentions for the interpretation? Well, he doesn't say here, but over in chapter 8, in verse 16, in another place, that individual is mentioned as the angel Gabriel. Uh, in visions, angels are quite prevalent. Remember John when he had his vision on the Isle of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation? It was an angel who gave him that information. But this particular angel, Gabriel, is always related to unique administrations of time. In fact, it was the angel Gabriel who announced the coming of Jesus Christ. Remember when we read in the book of Matthew, uh, when Mary found out and discovered that she was with child, it was the angel Gabriel who came to her and interpreted that moment for her and told her not to be distressed, for that which was in her was the Son of God. Well, here in this particular chapter, Daniel 7, is the other instance where Gabriel appears. And in this moment, he gives to Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And he does so in two parts. In verses 17 and 18, he just gives him a quick summary of history. And then starting in verse 19 all the way through verse 27, he gives more than just a cliff notes of this vision, but he focuses in on this last beast. Look at the dream in summarized form there in verses 17 and 18. Gabriel says, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, or four kingdoms. The word can also refer to empires. Are four empires which, are, which will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, that's all that's said of these first three beasts by way of interpretation. It's just a summary form. But what Gabriel says is these first three that you see are three kingdoms that will arise. In fact, all four are four kingdoms that will arise. And the general interpretation, in fact, the interpretation all the way through history back to the time of Jesus Christ has always been that these four beasts are the same four beasts that are in this statue. He says they just correspond. In fact, Martin Luther said in this interpretation opinion, all the world has agreed that these four beasts represent those four metals. And if this is so, then the first beast would represent Babylon, the second Medo-Persia, the third Greece, and the last one, the empire of Rome. Now I want you to know that fits pretty nice interpretively. 
And I agree with that. Fact is, when you begin to look at the descriptions of the beast, let me just run through them real quickly, you'll see how they fit with each of those empires. For instance, the first one that you see that's found there in verse 4, the lion. The lion. It's a fit description of Babylon. If you were living in 565 B.C. and you approached the city of Babylon, remember Bill mentioned the great walls that were 300 feet high, the impenetrable walls that surrounded that city? When you approach the gates to that city, what you would notice surrounding the gates were these magnificent asher blue tiles. And on all those tiles, inset in those tiles, would be the emblem of the Babylonian Empire. And the emblem of the Babylonian Empire was a lion that was standing on its hind feet with wings, symbolizing the incredible power and conquering ability of this great nation. Now, there's been one other nation who's used the emblem of this winged lion, and that is the British Empire. still does. It's the emblem of the British Empire. But this fits very well with the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, as being this great conquering nation, this lion that controlled initially the known world. Then secondly, you see there in verse 5, the raised bear, kind of a lopsided bear in verse 5. He's got his paw on one side up and he's got three ribs in his mouth. And again, just from a historical standpoint, that would fit well with Medo-Persia. Uh, the Medes and the Persians were known for their dominance. When they would go into a battle, they, wouldn't, they would win by just overwhelming numbers. And it wasn't until Alexander the Great that anybody could defeat those overwhelming numbers. They would send millions of people into a battle and by just sheer might would win that particular battle. Now, although the Medes and the Persians joined together to form this particular empire, this world power, it was a lopsided empire. The fact is the Persians were by far and away the dominant power in this partnership between the Medes and the Persians. That's probably why the bear is pictured as such. The three ribs in its mouth, I think again from a historical standpoint, represent the three kingdoms that Medo-Persia had to conquer to become the great world empire that ultimately it became. Conquering in Greece or Asia Minor the empire of Lydia, then conquering Egypt, and then finally conquering Babylon. And when it did that, its empire was at its zenith, the Medo-Persian empire. Then look in verse 6. There's the leopard with the four wings and the four heads. When you think of a leopard, what do you think about? Speed. And certainly what a great picture that was of how Greece became a world empire. Did you know that when Alexander the Great defeated Darius the Mede and ultimately conquered Medo-Persian and swallowed it up, he conquered the whole known world in just a matter of months. Greece was known for its lightning-like speed. And yet when Alexander the Great died in a drunken fever in the city of Babylon of all places at the age of 33, in his dying breath, his generals came to him and asked, who will you give the empire to, knowing of his imminent demise? And Alexander, like a true general, just looked up and he said, to whoever's the strongest. And what that set forth was this great struggle between his generals, and four of his generals split the empire into four parts. Four heads. And that empire went on until ultimately it was destroyed again by the Romans. Now that brings us in verses 7 and 8 to this last beast, this terrifying beast, the one that grabs 
uh, Daniel's attention the most. Now let's look at verses 19 and 20 because now Gabriel begins to add some interpretation to this last beast. Daniel says, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth, fourth beast. He wasn't interested so much in the other three, but he wanted to know about this fourth who was different from all the others. The thing that stood out about this particular beast is it was exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the other beast. Destroyed them all. And he wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that was on its head. That's what he focused on. And the other horn which came up, and before which three of the other horns fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Now here's what I want you to know in reading that particular statement. This interpretation is not of the Roman Empire that is now behind us. That's very important. As this angel gives us interpretation, he's speaking of the Roman Empire, but the, not the Roman Empire of our past. He's speaking of a Roman Empire in a second phase, yet to our future. And I think we know that again because the focus point of this beast is on its ten horns, and which becomes in the book of Revelation a clear sign denoting the reconvening, so to speak, of this world-dominating empire at the end of human history. Now historically, we know that when Babylon fell, the nation of Babylon, its power, its glory, and dominion was simply passed on to another power, that of Medo-Persia. And when Medo-Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great, its power and its dominion, its glory, was simply swallowed up by Greece. And the reason I'm saying this is because I want you to understand that for Babylon and for Medo-Persia as they were conquered, they weren't destroyed. They were simply swallowed up in a larger corporate merger, so to speak. It was a takeover into a greater entity. Each empire became greater in power and geographical extent. So in one sense, these empires didn't vanish. They were just simply incorporated into the next empire. Same way with Rome when it swallowed up Greece. It didn't destroy Greece. It just incorporated Greece. It incorporated the things of Greece, the culture of Greece, the language of Greece into its empire and just swelled even larger. It became the ultimate corporate raider. Now what happened when Rome fell? My question to you this morning is, who swallowed up Rome? Can't think of anybody, can you? And you know why? Because nobody did. See, in that sense, here's what I want you to know, and it's very significant. Rome did not fall. Rome simply dissolved. It simply broke apart in a lot of nondescript little parts. Kind of like when you blow on one of those uh, flowers and its seeds just spread everywhere. That's what took place here. It just went and it blew apart in these little bitty seeds that got planted and hundreds of years later those seeds would then sprout and flower into nations like Greece and France and Britain and Spain and Portugal and Italy 
And so in that sense, no one ever took over Rome. Rome just dissolved and broke apart, planted itself, and has sprouted again in what we call Western Europe and the Middle East. So in this sense of the ten horns now, what you get is this picture of these nations, which exist to this day, coming together and reconsolidating and reconvening at some time yet future into a empire, a centralized, world-dominating, even greater corporate raider empire that Daniel and the book of Revelation uh, supports as being the empire that will be at the end of human history, the one that will dominate the world at the end of human history. In fact, it says that in verse 23. Notice, Thus Gabriel said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Well, what did this beast look like? <clears throat> you know what's interesting in this uh, description? In this description of beast, the, uh, the dream tells you real clearly what the first three beasts look like. It talks about a lion, a bear, a leopard. We get all the external features of these animals. But when you come to this fourth beast, if you'll just notice by way of observation, not a lot is said about the exterior of this uh, great beast, is there? All it mentions is that it had iron teeth and ten horns, but that's the only picture you get of this particular creature. Well, for the rest of the message, I want you to keep your hand in Daniel and Revelation. We're going to be going back and forth between these two books. So turn back with me to Revelation 13, because 650 years later, another individual, John, has this same vision. And he sees this beast. The difference is he tells us a little bit more about what this beast looked like and why Daniel was so terrified of it. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 13. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and we don't know who the he is, but if you go back in the context, it's Satan. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we just read about a beast coming up out of the sea. Having ten horns. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <clears throat> Yet John goes on to say something else. It had seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. Those are crowns. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw, I get this, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like, those, like the mouth of a lion. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Here's kind of what he looked like. Kind of a scary animal, wasn't he? Had a lion's head and face and a leopard's body and we don't have the bear claws down there. He's got ten horns and seven heads. Now that is a scary dream. Especially if this thing was moving around in your vision. See? And that's the picture that he has here of these, this creature, this beast that comes out of the sea and all the features of this beast 
have great meaning. Now, the reason it's the lion, leopard, and bear is, as I told you earlier, is that this kingdom, this last beast, just simply swallowed up the other beast. And so all the cultural, religious features of all those other empires were incorporated in this last empire. Not done away with, just simply merged with. Now, the outstanding feature of this beast, at least that John focuses on and Daniel are the ten horns rather than the seven heads. And so those are the ones we want to look at next. So turn back to Daniel. Keep your hand in Revelation for just a moment and turn back to Daniel. Notice that these ten horns each have a diadem, a crown on them. Now in Daniel 7.24, he tells us why they have a crown. In Daniel 7.24, the angel says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, this last massive kingdom as they are in its first stage or its primal stage, just a loose connection of nations like we see exist today in Europe. Out of this conglomeration of seed nations, ten kings out of that location will arise. That's why these horns have diadems, crowns. Ten kings will arise, and then later another will arise after them. Now, these kings will form an alliance at some particular period of time. And again, turn back to Revelation, this time to Revelation 17, just for a moment. And it kind of hints at this alliance. I want you to notice it, which I think is helpful. Because in Revelation chapter 17, the same beast is discussed, but at the end, or close to the end of the chapter, in verse 12, it says something about these ten horns. In verse 12 it says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. So we're consistent. The Bible, by the way, is always consistent with itself. It never errs in that regard. The ten kings which you saw are, are ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Now, in John's day, the Roman Empire existed. So he's looking future to himself, to another part of this kingdom, a kingdom that's coming. He didn't know it was related to the Roman Empire in his day, but we know it. So he says there's this beast that's going to arise with these ten horns and ten kings, and they will receive a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with this beast, this empire, for one hour. Short period of time, in other words. Now notice verse 13. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now here's what this means. Here is what I call from the primal state of these loosely connected states to this first step of reconvening the new Roman Empire, not the old one. These kings arise, ten dominant figures, and as they look at themselves and they contemplate the future of our world, they think global. And they know that in and of themselves they cannot have control of the world, yet they want that control. So they make an alliance, one purpose to control. And therefore they are willing to give up some of their own control and their own autonomy and their own sovereignty in order to gather these parts together so they give their authority and power to the beast, the empire. And in doing so, they form kind of a federation of nations that come together and form a loosely associated or joined together empire. It's the first step of the regathering of these dissolved units. And they give themselves that way. This is what I think is meant 
in the statue in the feet of iron and clay where it says they can't quite adhere to one another. So in that sense, that's where the Daniel's prophecy in chapter 2 ends. But in Daniel chapter 7, we go on from that just loose reconvening. Now they're an empire. They're a loosely joined empire, but an empire. Daniel 2 takes us no further. Daniel 7 says, let's go on. Because what Daniel chapter 7 adds is this loosely joined first phase of the reconvening of this new Roman Empire, it doesn't last. And so now what enters into this beast that becomes the focal point from Daniel 7 all the way, by the way, to the end of the book. This next statement is what is the focus of the book of Daniel's prophetic statements from now on is this little horn. The little big horn, as I call it. Now the reason I call it the little big horn is for a couple of reasons. If you'll notice in verse 7, as Daniel sees this vision, he says it's a little horn, littler than the rest. And uh, nothing more is really said about that, but I take that to mean in its size. So somehow, as these ten kings are now allied together, someone else arises out of their midst. Doesn't have the prominence or the stature or the, necessarily the size or the power that the others do, but he arises nonetheless. So he's little in that sense. But then if you'll notice in verse 20, and this is kind of odd, it says that his appearance was larger than the rest. I take that to mean that this individual, and all these are individuals, these horns, by the way, that this individual is an incredibly magnetic and charismatic personality. You know when you're around somebody who's just got a lot of personality? They may be small in stature, but they look, they appear, they come across as bigger than the rest. Right? Well, that's the way this individual comes across as well. And it's through his charisma that he will lead to the second step of the reconvening of this empire. He's the little bighorn. Notice in verse 24 it says, As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Then it mentions this little bighorn. And another will arise after them. And he will be different, different in both size and stature and charisma from the previous ones. And he will subdue three of the horns. Over in verse 8, it says that he's going to rip them up by the root. In verse 20, it says that these three kings will fall. They will be defeated in some way by him. What I think this is describing in however way it takes place is a coup. You know, ten guys get together, they form a world alliance, and just like any ten guys, ultimately what's going to happen? Somebody has got to become Lord. Some guy's got to become the King of Kings. And somewhere in this process, how we don't know, it's not described, this loosely joined federation of nations of partners collapses into a centralized totalitarian monarchy. And with that, the revival of the Roman Empire, the new Roman Empire, becomes complete. It now crowns this little horn, this little big horn, as its new Caesar. And planet Earth will at that moment in time have its last emperor. There has been none like him. There will never be anyone like him after his time. He will have unbelievable power 
dominion, authority, charisma. He will subdue the earth. He will trample it down. He, from his own self, will be able to control the entire planet through different ways and means that are still not yet known to us. But you know the interesting thing about this individual? He won't be content with just being a ruler. You see, he's the ultimate new ager. He's not necessarily against there being a God, but any God outside of himself he's against. That's why it says, by the way, in verse 25, it says that he will speak out against God. You see, somebody who has that kind of egotism ultimately is not content with anybody else being God, much less there being a heavenly God. But eventually, in all that power, glory, and majesty, he proclaims himself God. Now that's not a foreign concept to the rest of the Bible, by the way. Uh, it's wrong on your outlines. I think it has 2 Thessalonians 2.7. Just make it 2.4. Because in chapter 2, verse 4, and you can read it for yourself later, it just simply says that there will come a time where this man, it calls him the man of lawlessness in the book of 2 Thessalonians, when he has control of the earth, he will display himself. And these are the words the Apostle Paul uses 600 years later. He will display himself as God. And in that there becomes this great conflict between him and his empire and a special group of people. And who are those people? It's the people of God, isn't it? You know, one of the things that's all the way through the book of Daniel is how Daniel would never compromise to a secular authority. Wouldn't bow the knee. Wouldn't worship the statue. Wouldn't worship Darius. So we found his friends thrown into a fiery furnace. He himself was thrown into a lion's den, but he wouldn't yield. And in that moment, whenever it comes, where the people of God are asked to worship this individual, not just to follow his leadership, they'll balk. And when they balk, the little bighorn will go into battle. And he will war against the saints of God. Notice it says that in verse 21, doesn't it? It says, and I kept looking. And one of the things about this horn is that he was waging war with the saints. And notice, and overcoming them. Now how will he do that? Well, turn back again to Revelation 13. I want to give you four... This is not inclusive, but uh, at least four ways that I think this particular person with his authority will war against God's saints. Let me give you four. You might just jot them down. The first is that he will be able to uh, employ an economic boycott on the saints of God. Notice verse 16. And he, that is this beast, this little horn, he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Maybe a little computer chip with your serial number. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the beast, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, and let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, if you read the rest of Revelation 13, the point about buying or selling is related to the worship of the beast. In fact, it says that in verse 15, if you'll notice. 
that they, those who don't worship the beast, they're going to have real problems. There's going to be an economic boycott. Some are going to be rounded up. And this is the second thing this particular monarch will be able to do, is he will be able to use roundups, police roundups, KGB-style kind of roundups, mock trials, and expedient executions to take care of the saints of God. In fact, if you'll notice over in uh, verse 8 and 9, or 9 and 10 of the same chapter, Revelation, it says, If anyone has ears, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This monarch will really take it out on the people of God. He'll keep them from buying and selling. He'll round them up and he'll kill them if they don't worship him. Be interesting to know, wouldn't it, in this auditorium of people, if times like that were to come, who would persevere? Who would fall away? Well, there's a third thing that he does, and this is back in the book of Daniel. You might just turn back there for a moment. He goes on to explain a little further. <clears throat> Verse 25 it says, not only will He speak out against the Most High, but He will wear down the saints of the Highest One. Notice that word, wear down. Interesting Hebrew word, by the way. The word wear down in Hebrew is a word that's always attached to mental affliction. Evidently, this particular monarch will have the ability to inflict people psychologically, mentally, maybe using the state-of-the-art technology, a brainwashing of some sort. But through that, he will overcome the saints of God. And then notice it goes on to say, and this is the fourth thing, that he will intend to alter or make alteration in the times. That is, the times that we have. Now, one of the things that just immediately comes to mind, if you're, especially if you're in the Western world, <clears throat> is that our calendar is set up around what? The life and death of Jesus Christ. <laughs> A.D., B.C. He won't like that. He'll alter those times. He'll create a new calendar, maybe around Himself. He'll also make alterations in the law. Because He's a sole monarch like Darius the Mede that we read about just a few weeks ago, He can change the law. It doesn't have to be legal that there's no trial. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't bother them if they need to exterminate a Christian. The law will be changed, much like Hitler changed the law, to just simply make it right. That's what he'll do. And it's going to be a tough time. It's going to be a time like no one has ever seen. It's going to be a time that's going to be limited, though. Notice it ends this verse, says, and this kind of power will be, will be given into his hand. And then it uses this phrase, time, times, and a half time. How long is that? Well, both in Daniel and in Revelation, we know exactly how long that is. A time is one year. Times is two years. Half time is a half year. Add them up and you get three and a half years. Three and a half years he will unleash this kind of persecution on the people of God. And he'll have triumph over him. It won't be a good day for us at the end of time. And you may say, gosh, why is God going to allow this? Well, he's going to allow it the same way he allows persecution at any point in time in history. It does two things, persecution. It purifies the people of God. And ultimately, it strengthens the people of God. Nowhere in here do you get the feeling that it's going to eradicate the people of God. But when this persecution breaks forth, 
Those who are true believers and those who are pseudo-church attenders, the sword will cut through that quite quickly. Those who really believe when this persecution tests the hearts and motives of men and women, it'll be exposed in that moment. There'll be purification. Secondly, there'll be strengthening. And I think the strengthening will come just like the book of Revelation says, because whenever there are martyrs in church history, the church has not died, it's grown. It's expanded. And it's going to be through this multiplication of tribulation that the church will multiply and grow and take the gospel to the rest of the world. Now, when God's purposes for this dreadful time are fulfilled, and I want you to know God, not the little bighorn, is really in control during this time. When all that has taken place, then this new Roman Empire with its last Caesar will come crashing down, and human history, according to Daniel as we know it, will come to an end. Look at verse 26. He says, But the court, and we saw the court over in verses 9 through 14. But the court, the court of God, will sit for judgment. And this little horn and its kingdom, its empire, its dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. All that this beast, this little man, with the great ego had worked for, all he had sacrificed both himself and his life for and the lives of others, all he had built up, all the greatness of this empire that he had constructed, the fame that now was acclaimed to him that he thought would go on as men do forever and ever and ever. When God's court sits and God acts and God judges, all of that becomes nothingness. disappears in an instant. Now I say that this morning because it's exactly the same way for a man or a woman who would live his or her life apart from God as if they were God with no thought of God. Trying to build a kingdom, sacrificing their life, using all their resources, consolidating everything they can get, in order to build them this little kingdom with the illusion that somehow their fame and their, their charisma will go on forever. That kind of lifestyle is lived to the ultimate by the little bighorn. He lives it in a way that no one here will ever be able to live it, nor has no one in the past, nor no one in the future. He will become the ultimate new ager the ultimate pursuit of all the media-driven advertisement. He will become like God and own the whole planet. A lot of us at our different levels, we follow that same little track. And yet at the end, notice those words. I hope they jump off the page for you. Taken away. Annihilated. Destroyed forever. You see, the ultimate death penalty in this day is to that kind of lifestyle. Poof. Gone forever. And with it, those who would live their lifestyle that particular way. Then notice, and this is almost ironic, in verse 27, the greatness and the power and the fame and the glory of all these kingdoms that we've been talking about 
of men who had sought life without God. Notice who all that's given to. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all these kingdoms under the whole heavens will be given to the people of God. To the people of the saints of the highest one. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. And at this point, the revelation ended. Not the truth, just the revelation. There is great reward for following Jesus Christ. There is great reward for giving your life and your time and your ability, yourself, to Jesus Christ. Now I could expand forever about how great that reward is in this life. But you know what is being communicated here is not about this life. He's saying all that reward that's being illustrated here is of a next life. When history is reconstructed, although this time after the blueprint of the kingdom of God. There is great reward for following Jesus Christ. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. I'm going to pursue that particular line of thought about judgment and rewards in the next message. But what I want to do now is just conclude looking at Daniel 7, how that applies to us. Because Daniel 7 is meant to tell us where history is moving. And if we saw this vision, I mean, if I saw this beast and all the things that went with it, I would be both alarmed, especially at the thought of having to go through a tribulation like this with the death and destruction and carnage it brings, but I'd also be encouraged, kind of both at the same time. Maybe that's what's meant to occur here. Maybe that's what happened in Daniel's on emotions as he experienced this. But you know, this vision is given to allow us to know what the end is so that we can live life in light of the end. Uh, Rich Campbell gave me a book. It's a best-selling book written by Stephen Covey. Covey is a... Uh, Harvard MBA, he is a personal consultant to 100 of the 500, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, sought after in every realm as far as being a business consultant. He wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Effective People. I'd recommend it, especially to you who are in business. But in this book, one of the things that he talks about as he looks at the habits of effective people is he says one of the key habits that they have is that they do things with the end in mind. They take on personal pursuits. When, when they start them, they do so with the end in mind. When they go through business projects, they have clearly the end in mind. When they parent, it's not just something that's for their business. In all walks of life, they parent with the end in mind. Do you live your life with the end in mind? You know what's so great about the Scriptures? Is it wants us to be effective. And though no one has a hold on the future, God does. And what God has done is He's allowed you to see the end. Now, why has He allowed you to see the end? So you can wait to the last minute and get your act together? No. It's so that you can live life effectively with the end in mind. Knowing that so many things that we tithe our time to are empty, vain, useless, and are in the raft of the little bighorn. That's what we're floating down history with. And it's to allow us to get out of that raft and get into another so we'll be in sync with history 
and where all history is flowing so that at the end, we won't proclaim ourselves at that final outcome a victim of this life as so many people do when they don't plan and think ahead. But we'll be able to be victors at that final outcome. Are you in sync? Are you an in sync with the future saint? <laughs> or an out of sync with the future saint? You live your lifestyle in light of the future, knowing the end? Or do you just kind of blot it out and just kind of drift with the currents? Bouncing off the walls of the embankments. That's an excellent question in light of these prophecies. That's what they're meant to do for us. Now I know at this moment, you can't reclaim your past, what you did in the past, nor do you have a hold on the future, because you don't. You're just standing in one moment in time, but that moment makes a difference. And so today, let me stimulate your thinking with just some application questions about being in sync. You have broken relationships here in this body. People that you can't get along with, people that you can't love. You know, that's out of sync with the flow of history. Because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is one of reconciliation. Are you in sync or out of sync? If you find yourself out of sync, knowing where history is going, how about taking a courageous step and initiating with that person a reconciliation? Humble yourself. Do what's right. Are you involved at this point in time in some secret sin? Something that you're hiding from everybody else? I want you to know, there are no sins in heaven that are secret. All is exposed. All is being recorded. All will be replayed at this judgment that we're looking at in 9 through 14. Knowing that, you out of sync or in sync? If you're out of sync, how about getting in sync? Put yourself in the raft that's flowing towards the right culmination of history. Go and confess that to a friend. Somebody that you can trust and ask for their help, both in counsel and accountability. It'll make a difference. It'll put you in the flow of history. Do you make time in your schedule? Do you make time in your schedule to love and build up and encourage others? That is, others than yourself. Do you have time, a space of time where you can do that? Or is all the time that you have taken not to trumpeting the cause of Christ, but to blowing your own little big horn? Just you, myself, and I, is all your time kind of just convened there? If you are, you're out of sync with history. You're out of sync with the flow of God in this life. Because He would ask you to tithe that time to others. To have time to love your wife, your husband, or your children, or your friends. To have time to just be there for someone else with no return necessarily, other than obedience. You have time for that? If you don't, you're not in sync. It doesn't matter what you're doing or how much you're making. You're out of sync. See, the flow of history is asking here, Daniel is telling us rather, that history is moving somewhere. So where are you moving? That's what's important. See, these are awesome questions for today in light of eternity. Especially when we know the end. It's been given to us to grab onto so we can be effective in this life. And you will never regret it. Not only in this life, but when the whole glory of this world is handed over to the saints of God.
We'll talk more about that next time. This is an awesome thought. Don't let it go by lightly. And may God help all of us to be that wise. To live life in light of the end. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.